Hey guys, we're so glad you're tuning into the Apex Students Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Apex Students, and we pray that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. Any history fans in the room? Some history? Wow, okay. Yeah, I knew that about some, not you, not at all. <laughs> I knew that about some of you, that you were history buffs. Um, you might not know this about me, but there was actually a time that I was going to be a history teacher. Um, I don't usually include this part of the story because the main, like the A story of my life was I was going to be a music teacher. Um, but when I was in high school, my music teacher said, it's really hard to get a music teaching job. So you should have a minor so that you can, you know, have a fallback plan or something to do and like waiting for a position to open. So I was like, I don't really like much of school, but history I can tolerate. So I, my plan was to you know, major in music education and then minor in history education so that I could teach history, get into school, you know, maybe get my feet wet and uh, prepared for the position that I actually wanted at that time. All of those, plays, those plans changed, obviously. Um, the thing that I liked most about history is that it capitalized on my greatest strength. Anything I'm good at, it usually comes down to one thing, and that is that I am good at remembering things. So if you think I'm good at like, wow, He's really good at names, just remembering. Oh, he's really good at acting. Nope, just remembering. If oh, he he like he does all that worship so well. Nope, just remember the words really well. So um, that is my main superpower. Tonight, if you don't like history, buckle up, because tonight we're gonna have a little history lesson. I'm hoping, aha, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, I'm hoping to make it less painful than than school. Um, but we're going to do a little bit of history tonight. We're talking, we're in this series called Talking Points, right? We've been, this is week three of Talking Points. And uh, Talking Points has been all about the perfect blend of religion and politics. We're looking at how we should act as Christ followers in our community. How do we make a difference? Um, tonight, we're going to look at history. And we're going to look at the early church. And we're going to look at how they made a difference and how their Um, Their unity was so disruptive and crazy and how they did it well because they handled the differences in their communities well. So how do we handle our differences well today? Their unity, the unity of the early church, shocked, intrigued, and changed the ancient world. And ours should too. Tonight, we're going to talk about disruptive unity. Disruptive unity is where we're at tonight. There's a lot of judgment in the world. Would you agree? A lot of judgment going on. And especially where there is division, there are people making judgments about the people they disagree with, making assumptions about them, and ultimately making enemies out of people just because of a disagreement on, in many cases, a silly little thing. Some issues are serious, but in many cases, it's just a silly disagreement, and we let it divide us to the point of making an enemy out of someone. One way that happens, here's a little, this is actually a psychology lesson. We're going all over the board today. This is called the fundamental attribution error. This is called the fundamental attribution error. And Alexa, what's fundamental attribution? Let me tell you. I'll tell you all about it. This is, this is what's called a cognitive bias. Uh, and that means something that your brain tends to do. It's a way that your brain is kind of wired to do this thing, uh, this, this fundamental attribution error. And you know, the error word implies that this is the thing that our, our brain is wired to do that's incorrect. You with me so far on the fundamental attribution error? It's a way that our, our brain is wired to do something that is typically incorrect. Here's the thing. We tend to believe when someone else does something wrong, does something bad, we attribute it to their character. We think they're a bad person. But when we do something wrong, suddenly, there are all kinds of excuses. 
and we blame it on a circumstance or an environmental factor. Here's a classic example. You and I are meeting at Chick-fil-A for lunch, and, the, and I show up 10 minutes late. Now, the fundamental attribution error would be me saying, um, well, it would be, okay, no, you show up late. Let's go with you show up late. <laughs> it's more likely that I'm late. But the fundamental attribution error says that if, that if you show up late, I assume that you are late because you are lazy, inconsiderate, uh, and don't care about my time. That is, that is my assumption of you according to the fundamental attribution error. Now, however, if I show up late, I make excuses. If I show up late, I would feel as though I was late because I was finishing an important project. I was in a conversation with my boss. I was on the phone with my wife, and she's dearly important to me. I was uh, caught in traffic, or my clock was wrong. That's what happens when I'm late. But when you're late, it's because you're a bad person. Does that make sense? <laughs> that is the fundamental attribution error. Um, when it's you, it's because you're a bad person. When it's me, it's because of the environment. It's some sort of factor out of my control. That's the fundamental attribution error. Now, lots of people do this in the world of politics. You've probably seen this. People love to villainize people they disagree with. It might sound like this. Democrats are corrupt. I've met every single one of them. They're all corrupt. Trust me. <laughs> or it might sound like this. Republicans are heartless. Every Republican, I've met them all. And if you're a Republican, you too are heartless. That's fundamental attribution error. When it's me, it's because of the environment. When it's you, it's because you're a bad person. When I disagree with you, it's because you are a bad person. Here's the thing. Mature emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people, which we should be. Don't do that. Mature, intelligent, curious people don't fall for this trap. We don't have to do that. We don't have to participate in the fundamental attribution error. But the political world feeds into this error, feeds into this disunity and conflict. You might remember this verse we talked about last week, Galatians 6.2. It's all about carrying each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill, we talked about this last week too, the law of Christ. And a funny thing happens when you start to carry someone else's burden. A funny thing happens to you. When we do that, we see them as a real-life person. When we carry someone's burden, we see them as a living, breathing you. We understand where they sit. We understand that they stand where they stand because of where they sit. We understand our circumstances, what has gone into making them who they are. We start to listen and learn and love them like Jesus does. And this, this idea, carrying each other's burdens, is how the early church began. And it's how the early church changed the world. It's how they changed everything. It was their disruptive unity. I think the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. I said this last week. So we're in this series called Talking Points, talking about religion, which we're not supposed to. Um, We've been asking this question. Are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to be a Christ follower first and a Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent or whatever, American, second? Because being a Christ follower should come above those other filters. Because when we are putting politics over jesus I'll allow it. We're doing the world a disservice. When we put our politics above following Jesus, we're doing the world a disservice because we're robbing them, we're robbing the political world of the love of Jesus. And we're doing Jesus a disservice because we're not representing him well. It's wrong all around. Jesus is not a line item on a political platform. He didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. That's not my quote. I shouldn't attribute it because I'm not 100% sure. I think it was Toadie Evans, though. 
He didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He didn't come to support a candidate or a political order. He came to radically change and replace the way things were. He came to change everything. He was the king to reverse the order of things. And as much uh, fun as being party people sounds, when it comes to politics, we don't get to be party people. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, eating pizza, we can be party people. But when it comes to pol politics, we don't get to do that. Um, and it's how the early church, this is where we're going to go back into history. This is the early church. They didn't mess around here. They lost, some of them lost their lives because they refused to pledge unconditional allegiance to the ruling class, to emperors, even the good ones. They refused to pledge their allegiance to them. Their unity was disruptive. The message of Jesus was seen as a danger to the empire. This is where we're going to spend a lot of our time tonight. Because the, the empire had this, uh, the Roman empire had this intricate hierarchy of wealth and power. And we have a lot of these dynamics in our own way, but the Roman empire was very distinct. They had wealth influence. It was all, you know, you had your place in society and your family was going to have your next, your next generation. It was going to be in the same place. Jesus came along and he said, I'm going to make God equally available to everyone. I'm going to be the God of everyone. doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. I'm going to be the God of everybody. It was countercultural at that time. Um, and these words, Paul wrote these words in Galatians 3. And they, they don't sound crazy to us, but at the time, they were crazy. But this is what he said. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Okay. The Jews said, wait a minute. I have to welcome in the Gentiles into this family? Do you know about Gentile cooties? Because I don't want none of that in my house. <laughs> the Gentiles are weird. They eat weird foods. They wear weird clothes. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And then the Gentiles said, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to be in the same family as the Jewish people because they're so exclusive. They have all these rules and rituals. And they've never liked us. They've always turned us away. I don't want anything to do with them. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Or slave or free. And the slave said, wow, I, are you trying to tell me that this God sees the same dignity in me that he sees in my master? Because no one has ever treated me that way. No one has ever put slave on the same level as master. Are you hearing this? No one in, in, in history ever. There was, in, in history, slavery was just the thing. It was just the way things were. And Jesus came along and he set up this order and Paul was reflecting on this order. And he said, there doesn't, we don't need that. It's not about power dynamics. In this family, there is no slave or master. And the masters were hesitant, right? <laughs> I don't know about all this. I don't know about losing that kind of power. I don't know if, about treating my slaves that kind of way. It was a new message. It was disruptive. It was dangerous. And then he said, he went on to say male and female. Hang on. Maybe the Jews and Gentiles can work it out. But if you expect me as a man to give up my power that has been given to me because I'm a man, I'm not ready to do that. What if the women find out about this? <laughs> but if you're a woman, you're experiencing something similar to the slaves experience because there were some powerful women, but <laughs> unless you were a particular kind of woman with you know, the right family and the right amount of money, you didn't have any power or influence in society. You were, you were standing in a similar place as a slave. So this news changes everything. When Jesus says, I'm getting rid of these hierarchies, everyone has equal access to me. It was new. It was dangerous. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. No distinctions, 
no hierarchy of social influence, no power dynamics. Everyone is of equal value and dignity in the family of God. This was countercultural. It was disruptive, disruptive unity. And if it catches on, these people are saying, I don't know about all this. If it catches on, it could unravel our empire. And here's a hint. It did. Jesus said in Luke 16, he said, but now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. It actually did unravel an empire. It actually did change everything. Something happened 45 years after Paul, we're talking about a lot of stuff he wrote. About 45 years after he was executed because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, this culturally disruptive unity that Christians had created, Christ's followers had created, it had made enough waves in the world, that the emperor Trajan was rounding up Christians and interrogating them. He's like, what are you guys doing? This is wrong. This is not how society works. What, what's up here? So he wanted to figure out what was going on in this Nazarene cult, because at the time, that's how it was seen. They were, they were worshiping this dead guy from Nazareth. That doesn't make any sense. So one of the emperor's governors, um, he was the emperor of what is today called Turkey. Uh, at the time, it was a part of the Roman Empire. He is called Pliny the Younger. I, I don't know why. <laughs> He's a person, like, I've seen his name in history books, and I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with that, but we're going to talk about him today. Pliny the Younger. He did a bunch of these interviews because he was the governor of this territory, right? So he's rounding up Christians, and he's, like, interrogating them, um, probably torturing them, to, if we're being honest. Like, this wasn't a very humane time. They were going to do whatever it took to get information. And then he was confused about some of the things he found out. When he really found out what the Christians were doing, he was like, I don't know, really understand what we're doing here. Um, so he wrote a letter back to the emperor. And what's really cool, this letter was written like 2,000 years ago, and we have this letter. Like, we know what he wrote, which is super, super cool. So this is what he said. I'm going to show you. This is what he discovered about Christians. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. We are rounding up and torturing Christians because they get up early. Okay, so <laughs> they were meeting on Sunday mornings. And at this time, Sunday was a work day. We have a totally different culture, right? Where a lot of people get off on Sundays. A lot of people don't have to go to work. Chick-fil-A's closed. It's a different culture. Sunday was a work day. And he was like, these people are getting up before work to worship together on Sundays. So this small conflict is a hint to how the rest of this letter is going to play out. Um, what do you think Apex would be like if we met at, like, say, 5.30 a.m. before school <laughs> on a Monday? I appreciate that honesty because I think you're right. I also think you wouldn't be here. <laughs> I don't know if I could be here, <laughs> to be quite honest. The letter goes on. And sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. So the next time you want to complain about us singing together, picture what they're doing. Remember the early Christians huddled in a group of 15 or 20 people in somebody's backyard singing the sunrise in. <laughs> We are pretty lucky. These are our people. I'm going to make this point a couple times. The people I'm describing here, these are our people. This is the same people. We are the same family, the same movement. And to bind themselves by oath, that's where it is, right? They're making an oath. That's got to be where the crime's going to happen, right? This is where we're going to get into trouble. They're going to be swearing an oath to another nation, a rival empire, or to some sort of overthrow the government, coup-type situation. This, this oath is where we're, they're going to get you. Not to some crime. Oh, okay. Then what are they making an oath to? But not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, 
nor falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. You know, this isn't like sounding so bad. (laughs) This group of Christians is not like sounding like they're about to unravel a nation or overthrow a government. Imagine this story playing out. Pliny the Younger, he's instructed to interrogate, torture Christians, round them up, torture them, to find out what they're up to, and this is what he finds out. They get up early, they sing, and they promise to be good people. (laughs) What is the crime here? (laughs) Not only what is the bad thing, these are really good things. This is something I want to be a part of our nation. This does not sound like roundup and torture time to me. This is the group that's threatening the greatest empire in the world? This is a wimpy group. This is not a threat. The principles of these people, so to the ruling class, the principles of this group were appalling. They were appalling. Even their god was a wimp. Because the the Roman gods, they were all about the same things. They were all about strength, victory, military conquest, and dominance. And the Christians are following a god who died right in front of them? Who, who taught humility and sacrifice and servanthood, what are those? These are not values that were valued in the Roman Empire. But as I just described of uh, Pliny the Younger's follow, uh, findings, to many people, this was kind of appealing. This was kind of like, I can see, I can get behind this idea. Like, they ref- these Christians were doing good things in our community. They refused to abandon sick people. They cared for orphans and widows. We read about that in James 1. They took in abandoned children. We talked about that last week. They extended dignity to women and slaves. This they don't sound so bad. And after it went from appalling to appealing, it became contagious. It, it became uh, a take-over-the-world type situation against all odds. This Nazarene cult who worshipped a crucified rabbi, they had no land or military or political power or influence, that was founded on these pathetically weak ideas of love each other, serve, respect, take care of people, like sacrificial and service-oriented leadership. What are those things? We like those now. At the Roman Empire, they're like, what? Come on. A bunch of wimps. Not only did they survive, not only did they multiply, but they shaped the world. (laughs) I don't think about this enough. The early church shaped our world. They literally changed the world. Those are our people. That is our movement. That is the same group that we are a part of today. So as we are living that same movement, a movement that changed the world with kindness and love, a movement that gave dignity and respect to people that the world did not give dignity and respect to, a movement that shocked the world with their disruptive unity. Let's do that. Can we do that? Let's do what the early church did. Let's be known for love and respect. Let's be known for carrying each other's burdens. And even though we're different in this room, we are different, but we can still disagree politically and love unconditionally and pray for unity, just like Jesus did. Together, we can make the world better. And maybe we can leave this country. We are, this is a, a, the next generation. As far as politics goes, you don't get to vote yet, right? So you're the next generation. 
Maybe if we live this disruptive unity, we might be able to leave this nation a little less divided than we found it. Can we pray for that together? Father, thank you for your call, for your mandate, for your prayer request that your people would be united. Thank you for this history lesson of a people who were united and that we can see what happens when we're reunited. When we are united, we change the world. We are a part of a movement that changed the world when they were united. Let us live up to that. Let us have disruptive unity. Let's, let's do everything we can to be disruptively unified in this church because people are added to your kingdom when we are unified. That is the so what. <laughs> that is why we are unified because when we are one, people see your love. Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. We get to be a part of your mission for this nation. And uh, for this, let's zoom in for this state for NEPA, for the back mountain and the valley. Thank you for letting us be a part of what you're doing in our community. We love you. We dedicate it to you. In your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to this Apex Student Podcast. You can listen to more Apex teachings by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We pray that this message has impacted your life and that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus.